Composer Gustav Mahler said a symphony should embrace the world. In just a few bars, he can take the listener on a walk through the forest, conjure visions of the Last Judgment, recreate a wild folk dance, or paint a picture of heaven. I'm Stuart Holt. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we explore the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra's upcoming All Mahler program at Carnegie Hall. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. The Metropolitan Opera Orchestra begins a three-concert series at Carnegie Hall with an all-Mahler program featuring selections from the song cycle Des Knaben Wunderhorn, The Youth's Magic Horn, and his symphony number no. one, The Titan. For today's episode, Guild lecturer Naomi Baratera discusses these two major works and their place within Mahler's time. Gustav Mahler was born in the small town of Kalisht in 1860 to Bernhardt and Marie Mahler. At that time, Mahler's birth town was part of Bohemia, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Today, it is part of the Czech Republic, and the building where Mahler was born still stands. His family were part of a minority German-speaking Jewish population in Bohemia at this time, and he was born into what would become a very large family. He was the second child of 14, although several of his siblings did not survive past infancy. When Gustav was about six months old, the Mahler family moved to the larger, bustling city of Iglau, primarily to expand Bernhardt's distillery and inn business. Iglau, located on the border of Bohemia and Moravia, right beside a major river, was a bustling hub for travelers, merchants, and the military. And it was here that Mahler was exposed to a rich musical folk culture. It was also here, at the age of four, that Mahler first began tinkering at his grandparents' piano. Recognizing their son's innate musical skill, Gustav was given lessons and made his first public appearance at the age of 10. In 1875, at the age of 15, Mahler's piano talents had grown significantly, and at the suggestion of a family friend, he went to Vienna to play for a piano professor at the conservatory. Mahler was admitted to the Vienna Conservatory, and it was through his studies there that he discovered a deep love for composing, eventually making that his primary focus of study instead of piano performance, although he did continue to teach piano as a means of making money while he was in school. Mahler is also known as one of the greatest conductors of his time and made a significant impact on the field of conducting itself. He got his start as a conductor in 1880 at a small summer theater in Austria. He soon gained a reputation as being very strict on the podium, with high standards for the musicians he worked with. In 1885, he moved to Prague, where he conducted Mozart and Wagner operas for the first time and began building a reputation as an excellent interpreter of both composers' works. From Prague, he moved to Leipzig, where he conducted works by Karl Maria von Weber and was invited by Weber's grandson to complete and conduct one of Weber's unfinished operas, Die Drei Pintos. 
It was this project that really catapulted Mahler into the public eye and put him on a track to composer-conductor stardom. From Leipzig, he went to Budapest, where he stayed for three years as the conductor of the Royal Opera. While in Budapest, he composed and premiered his Symphony No. 1, which didn't make much of a mark upon its world premiere. But this didn't affect Mahler's popularity as a conductor, and he soon launched into an extremely busy season of conducting in Hamburg, sometimes up to 19 operas per month, in addition to a handful of international guest-conducting appearances in England. Being in demand as a conductor meant that time for composing was limited. So by 1893, now established as a conductor of influence, Mahler was able to take retreats now and then to the absolutely gorgeous town of Salzkammergut, where he could focus primarily on his composing. His first big compositional success came in 1895 when he premiered his second symphony in Berlin. The great composer Richard Strauss heard the work and became a big supporter of Mahler from that point onward. But again, conducting would demand his attention with a new level of intensity when he was offered the post of principal conductor at the Vienna Court Opera in 1897, and then conductor of the Vienna Philharmonic in 1898. In Vienna, Mahler's strict approach to conducting and high standards for all elements of the performance experience elevated the reputation and the success of both companies, and he introduced an unprecedented amount of new works to the public. In retrospect, we can see that Mahler's incredible contribution to these now-revered musical institutions went hand-in-hand with a growing personal reputation that was not entirely favorable. He was known as being very difficult to work with, extremely dictatorial in his approach to leadership, and had numerous affairs, very messy affairs, with singers— And as one author described, he treated all he worked with like they were circus animals and he the all-powerful lion tamer. Among the many tense disputes that peppered his career in Vienna, there was outrage from orchestra musicians that disliked his tyrannical conducting, stagehands felt Mahler was demanding too much without fair compensation, German nationalists thought that he was promoting degenerate Czech works, and the orchestra administration felt that he was shamelessly self-promoting his own compositions. Added to all of this, a strong anti-Semitic faction took offense to everything he did simply because he was of Jewish heritage. Despite his success at the podium and in his artistic leadership, his reputation would gain a new kind of complication in 1902 when he married socialite Alma Schindler. Through Alma, who knew everyone who was everyone in Viennese artistic circles, Mahler came into contact with painters of the Viennese secession movement, as well as composers a generation younger than him that he would greatly influence, such as Arnold Schoenberg and Alban Berg. From 1899 to 1907, 
Mahler's composing increased, and he turned out symphonies four through eight, as well as two large song cycles. Rising anti-Semitic sentiments in Vienna led to him leaving both conducting posts by 1907, and as if fate was adding insult to injury, he lost his beloved eldest daughter Maria to scarlet fever that same year. In 1908, he and Alma left Europe for New York City, where he fulfilled conducting engagements here at the Metropolitan Opera and with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. While working in New York, he still returned to Europe every summer for compositional retreats, and it was during this time that his compositions began to be performed more regularly. During a summer retreat to Europe in 1910, Mahler's Symphony No. 8 made its premiere in Munich and was deemed an incredible success. But Mahler's moment of triumph was marred by turmoil in his personal life. Just before the premiere, Mahler discovered that his wife, Alma, was having an affair with architect Walter Gropius. Mahler and Alma did decide to stay together, and Mahler tried to mend long-ago damaged fences, but his efforts ultimately did not prevent Alma's affair with Gropius from continuing in secrecy. Then, in 1911, Mahler fell incredibly ill while back in New York City for the concert season. He had been experiencing a sore throat for a couple of weeks, and then, on a day that he was supposed to be conducting a concert at Carnegie Hall, he fell sick with a fever. But he insisted on conducting, even though he apparently had a temperature of 104 degrees Fahrenheit, and it would be the last concert he would ever conduct. He was eventually diagnosed with bacterial endocarditis, a disease that attacked him particularly hard because of a pre-existing heart condition, and for which, in the age before antibiotics existed, there was no known cure. Mahler and Alma traveled back to Europe so Mahler could receive treatment, but hospitals in Paris and Vienna were unable to improve his condition. He died on May 19, 1911, in Vienna, and his funeral, although reportedly very simple, was attended by some of the greatest musical figures of the 20th century, including Arnold Schoenberg and Bruno Walter. Turning to his music, if there is one concept that runs like a thread through all of the works planned for the Allmahler program coming up at Carnegie Hall on May 31st, it is a deep connection between song, or the German Lied, and the symphonic form, and this runs throughout all of Mahler's compositional output. Mahler merged these two forms together unlike any composer before him, and even though he never composed for the opera stage, it is clear that he was very attracted to beautiful melodies brought to life by the human voice, and their potential to infuse a symphonic work with another layer of musical complexity. We are going to start by looking at Das Knaben Wunderhorn, and then move on to Symphony No. 1, and even though this is reverse chronological order in terms of when they were written, it is the order in which they are going to be performed at the concert on May 31st. In the early 1800s, two German poets, Achim von Arnim and Clemens Brentano, published a collection of poems in three volumes called Das Knaben Wunderhorn. Both men had a big interest in folk tales, fairy tales, old German sagas, and anything that connected with German folk cultural roots. 
they did extensive travel, gathering poems of various kinds on all different subjects, and then edited their findings, freely modifying them to make sure the poems conformed to specific poetic meters, and published the first volume of poems in 1805, followed by two more volumes in 1808. This collection was very eclectic, with a wide variety of stories and subject matter, and quickly became incredibly popular in Germany. As Howard Posner wrote, the collection's mix of everyday experience and the supernatural and bizarre, and its connection to German places and things, made it a work perfectly attuned to the Romantic movement, which was bringing the same elements to high art. The popularity of the poems in print led to many composers utilizing the texts in their song compositions, including Mendelssohn, Schumann, Brahms, Schoenberg, Webern, and Mahler. The story goes that while Mahler was working on the completion of Karl Maria von Weber's Das Drei Pintos, he spent a great deal of time with Weber's grandson, also named Karl, who was dedicated to the publication and completion of his grandfather's work. Mahler often visited to discuss the project, although some say that Mahler was also very enamored with Marion Weber, Karl's wife. And on one such visit, it is said that Mahler was browsing through a bookshelf and pulled out a copy of Des Knaben Wunderhorn. He opened it up, started to read, and was immediately struck by the stories he found. Inspired by the texts, he began composing some of his first Wunderhorn songs and soon after began work on his first symphony. Although some scholars have suggested that Mahler may have come in contact with the Wunderhorn poetry before this fateful day in the Weber's living room, we know that his introduction to this collection, however it truly happened, was a defining moment in Mahler's early compositional life, as it would become a key feature of inspiration behind his composing from that point onward. In his Memories of Mahler, Bruno Walter described Mahler's instant attraction to the Wunderhorn texts in this way. When he finally read the Wunderhorn, he must have felt as though he was finding his home. Everything that moved him was there. Nature, piety, longing, love, parting, night, the world of spirits, the tales of mercenaries, the joy of youth, childhood, jokes, quirks of humor, all pour out as in his songs. All told, Mahler composed 24 songs based on Wunderhorn texts, and several of those songs ended up being integrated into his symphonic works. Upon hearing some of the Wunderhorn songs for the first time, Edward Hanslick described them in this way. Mahler, one in the forefront of modernism, shows a desire, as often happens, to seek refuge in the opposite extreme, in naivete, in unremitting sentiment, in the terse, even awkward language of some of the old folk songs. It is impossible to ignore the fact that there is a contradiction, a dichotomy between the concept of the folk song and the artful, superabundant orchestral accompaniment. The history of composition and publication for these songs can be very confusing because Mahler published many of them individually and separately before ever grouping parts of them together as a collection and several were composed first for voice and piano and then later turned into or integrated into various orchestral settings. The first batch of Wunderhorn songs were composed between 1887 and 1890. They were first published as the second and third volume of a larger song collection, and they were set for voice and piano. 
In 1892, Mahler began working on a second round of Wunderhorn songs, with the first five songs composed while Mahler was working in Hamburg. The first of these five songs is Der Schildwache Nachtlied, the Sentinel's Night Song. This is the story of a soldier who gets killed while on duty because he's daydreaming about his sweetheart. We hear the military setting in the music with drums and brass, and Mahler frames the whole song as a conversation between the ghost of the dead soldier and his love. Let's listen to just a little bit of this so you can hear that musical storytelling. The second song in this first group of five, Verlorne Mew, Labor Lost, is all about failed flirtations of a young girl with a boy that she has set her sights on. The third song, Trost im Ungluck, Solace in Misfortune, is another dialogue between two lovers. And then song number four, Wer hat dies Liedlein erdacht, Who Thought Up This Song?, is another love song, and this actually includes a yodeling element in the music. So we'll listen to just a little bit of that so you can hear how it's integrated into the song. The last song in this group of five is called Das Irdische Leben, the Earthly Life, and this was written after or around April 1892. This is a very chilling song telling the story of a child who is starving to death. It is set as a dialogue between the child and its mother, and scholars often talk about the relentlessness of the orchestra representing the inevitability of death. So this group of five songs were first written or conceived as works for voice and piano, and then later reworked into voice and orchestral settings. Mahler continued writing Wunderhorn settings after this, between 1892 and 1898, producing seven more for a total of 12 in this second batch. Songs 6 through 12 include Des Antonius von Padua's Fischpredigt, which is St. Anthony of Padua's Sermon to the Fish, and this is a parody song about the busyness of life. Rhein-Legendchen, Little Rhine Legend, which is the story about a gold ring that is tossed into the Rhine River. Lied des Verfolgten im Turm, 
which is the song of the persecuted in the tower. And this one is really interesting because it is all about a prisoner who is singing in his cell, longing for freedom, while his love is outside mourning his incarceration. From there we have Wo die schönen Trompeten blasen, where the fair trumpets sound, and this is actually a ghostly conversation between a dead soldier and the love that he left behind. Number 10, Lob des hohen Verstandes, Praise of Lofty Intellect, a comical song with text from the perspective of a donkey. And then 11 is Urlicht, Primeval Light, and this is a very spiritual song about humankind's greatest needs and the desire for eternal heaven. And then the last in this group of 12 is Es Zungen Drei Engel, which tells the story of angels singing a sweet air. There are several connections between songs in this collection and Mahler's symphonic output, where self-quotation and integration of musical materials from the songs into the symphonic form make the piecing together of the compositional timeline quite a complex puzzle. Mahler eventually utilized musical material from song number five in the finale of his fourth symphony, and because of this, the song was left out of early publications of the Deskanabenwunderhorn collection. Musical material from song number six also was incorporated into the second symphony, into the scherzo movement. So we're going to listen to that now so you can hear first the song text. This is Des Antonius von Padua Fischpredigt. And then we're going to listen to how that is incorporated into the scherzo of symphony number two. So you can hear that connection. Antonius zu Predigt, die Kirche wird ledig. Er geht zu den Flüssen und predigt den Fischen. Sie schlagen mit den Schwänzen, im Sonnenschein glänzen, im Sonnenschein, Sonnenschein glänzen. Die Karpfen mit Rogen sind all hierher zogen, hat die Mäule aufrissen, sich zu überflitzen. Kein Predigt niemanden, den Fischen so gefallen.
The original piece, numbered as song 11 in this second grouping of compositions, Urlicht, which was first composed, we think, in 1892 and then orchestrated in 1893, was also incorporated into the Second Symphony, but in the finale movement. Here is a little bit of Urlicht as it is in its song form, and then we're going to listen to the parallel moment in Symphony Number no. 2 so you can hear them back to back.
To make matters even more complicated, Mahler never got around to orchestrating song number 11, Urlicht, and in 1901, he decided to swap out that song, 11, as well as number 12, as Zungen Drei Engel, for two new pieces, Rehwelge and Der Tamburg's Zell, and there are symphonic links between these two late editions as well in symphonies 5, 6, and 7. Mahler also freely adapted the texts from their original poems, changing lines, rewriting things, and in some cases, changing the storyline of the original text to suit a new idea or take that he had on the poem. An example of this is song number nine, Wo die schönen Trompeten blasen. As Howard Posner writes, Before Mahler got to it, Wo die schönen Trompeten blasen was a dialogue between two lovers. When Mahler finished rewriting the poem, it was about a meeting between a woman and the ghost of her dead soldier lover. His promise that they would be together becomes a prophecy of her death. Horns, trumpets, and strings are all muted at the beginning, giving a sense of distance and mystery to the nighttime scene. The mutes gradually come off by the end, making the sound more immediate as the mystery is resolved and we learn that one of the protagonists is a ghost. If you are going to see the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra perform their All Mahler program at Carnegie Hall coming up on May 31st, then you will notice by looking in the program that they are not performing all 24 Deskanaben Wunderhorn songs that Mahler wrote. As is commonly done, they are performing selections from the whole, and they are focusing on the second round of Wunderhorn settings, the group that we just discussed, which were published as a set of 12 with many revisions that happened over time. The Metropolitan Opera Orchestra will be performing the first 10 in this collection, leaving out the original 11th and 12th song, Urlicht in S. Zungen Drei Engel, as well as leaving out the revised editions from 1901. Now, going back in time, Mahler began working on his first symphony in 1887. It seems as though in the beginning of this work, he didn't really conceive the work as a full-length, completely drawn-out symphony, and he often referred to it as a symphonic poem or a tone poem in early performances. 
when it made its premiere in Budapest in 1889, which we already talked about, audiences not being particularly thrilled with it, and so Mahler then made some fairly extensive revisions to it before it had its second performance in Hamburg in 1893. Then it was not until 1896 that the symphony was completely revised into its now four-movement form as we know it and hear it today, and Mahler continued to revise and tweak it a little bit more before it finally went into print publication in 1898. As it stands now in its most commonly accepted final version, there are four movements and it does follow a fairly typical pattern or formula for a symphony of the late Romantic era. The only little quirk or deviation from this four-movement form as we know it today is that in early performances, there was a set piece called Blumine that Mahler added between what is now the first and second movement. But then he took it away again after the first two performances when he was making all of those revisions. Unsurprisingly, Mahler actually drew Blumine from another work he had previously completed, a series of incidental pieces from 1884. All the other music from that project is lost, so Blumina survives in its short-lived function as an insertion into Symphony No. 1, and it's the only piece from that, or section from that incidental music of his earlier composition that ever survived. Even though the Blumina movement is rarely performed today, musical material from it does appear throughout the rest of the symphony, and there are several recordings that can be found where it is included. Benjamin Britten was particularly fond of this element of this particular symphony and is known for really championing including it in performances and in recordings as much as possible. What I love about this symphony is the incredible, rich musical imagery that Mahler creates. If you just close your eyes and listen, your imagination can go through an incredible journey. There are all kinds of imitation and incorporation of very realistic types of sounds, evocations of nature from bird calls to hunting horns, folk music influences in instruments with cymbals and different drums, folk songs, chromatic harmonies with very folkish sounding roots, incorporation of very realistic sounds like military bands, and incredible harmonic innovations that connect the work with the post-Wagnerian, chromatic, and very impressionistic musical landscape without ever losing its footing in tonal structure. Symphony No. 1 falls in what scholars call Mahler's first creative period, where programmatic music dominates his interests. Music that has a narrative, a storyline, or dramatic inspiration driving its overall conception and evokes vivid imagery in its musical language. 
This is a time where Mahler is carving out for himself a distinctly German sound, one that draws on Romantic-era influences and is very poetic in its inspiration, but he juxtaposes that poetic element with very realistic elements and then juxtaposes that with extreme emotions from love to hate, tragedy, irony, humor, passion. All of these things get fused together in a kind of freer form than we've ever seen before. He also had a kind of layering approach. So there's a layering of emotions, of musical sounds, of melodies, structures, motifs, transformations, so much so that early audiences often felt that his music was really hard to listen to and difficult to understand. Today, we find it genius, and we indulge in teasing out all of those different layers that we find. Mahler is said to have once expressed that a symphony needs to encompass the entire world and that his symphonies were written about life, two phrases that came from a man who, despite being very difficult to work with, had a genius musical mind and was known to be deeply spiritual. Now we know from our exploration of Des Knaben Wunderhorn that songs were generally very influential on Mahler's symphonic composing, and we see evidence of that from the beginning of his work with this symphony, Symphony No. 1. The first movement opens with strings, woodwinds, and brass playing in open octaves, in violins in the highest range actually playing harmonics, and to create harmonics, the player has to hold their finger down only part of the way on the string, so that when the bow is drawn across the string, very high overtones in that pitch class come out, and it has a very ethereal quality, and that ethereal quality creates the fabric upon which the opening musical material unfolds. A general descending motif is heard, and then we hear the brass come in, horn and offstage trumpets.
When the symphony made its world premiere, Mahler did not attach any kind of program note to explain his points of inspiration. And when the symphony failed to make an impression on the public, he decided to try the program note approach for the second performance in Hamburg. Then, in later performances after that, he reversed that decision, abandoning program notes entirely, as he did not want to influence the audience too heavily in their interpretation of the music's meaning. Nevertheless, I think it is interesting to consider his descriptions from the Hamburg performance. Of this first movement, he stated, Spring and no end. The introduction depicts the awakening of nature from the long sleep of winter. And we really do get this nature-inspired atmosphere in the music. Drones connect with a folkish tune, and then a little descending motif can be heard. It kind of sounds like a cuckoo or a bird call. And this is where we get our first song connection, as this melody is reused or is a self-quote from the second song in Mahler's cycle, Songs of the Wayfarer. Mahler connects us with a very overt folk reference as the musical material of this movement is inspired by the Austrian Landler, a type of folk dance in 3-4 time that was a precursor, we believe, to the Austrian waltz. The Landler is a more rustic dance than the waltz, and although it is a couple's dance, it often involves hopping or stamping of the feet as part of the dance steps. As we listen to the opening of movement two, try to count along, thinking in groups of three, and listen for the strong accents in the music. These accents clearly allude, at least to me, where that stomping or hopping in the Landler choreography would have been happening.
This movement follows a minuet and trio structure, movement two, and the minuet and trio was a common element of symphonies in the Romantic era, where the minuet was a more lively section and was contrasted by a lyrical trio. Here, the lively Landler-inspired opening we just heard functions as that minuet, and it is followed by a very gentle musical theme, which gives us that lyrical trio feeling. Of course, Mahler brings back that lively Landler from the opening to bring the movement to a very energetic close. The most famous example of Mahler quoting a folk music source and adapting it into the fabric of a symphonic movement comes in Movement 3, where we have a quotation and adaptation of the well-known children's song Frere Jacques, or, as Mahler called it in German, Bruder Martin. This is set as a minor funeral march in Symphony No. 1, so it sounds very different from that innocent kind of nursery rhyme type song we would know it as when we hear children sing it. Now, this is one of my very personal favorite moments in the whole symphony, and I think this movement is just so amazing. The minor setting of the children's song sends chills up the spine every time I hear it, and then it's paired with this slightly grotesque counter-melody, and it has a kind of klezmer or bohemian-like dance sound with lots of chromatic twists and turns. It's a very perfect counterbalance and pairing with this minor opening. When you listen to the movement from beginning to end, it is really mind-blowing how Mahler layers and weaves these two musical ideas in and out of each other as the music unfolds. When it begins, we hear the timpani plodding gently, setting a very mournful pace, and then a solo contrabass enters, the big tall double basses at the back of the orchestra, and they are stating, or it is stating because it's a solo, the main melodic theme for the first time this minor Frere Jaca. Soon a bassoon will enter, then a cello, then a tuba, all playing the melody in this haunting layered round.
It is said that the inspiration behind this piece came from an old Austrian children's book called The Huntsman's Funeral. In the book, there's a very specific illustration that was Mahler's point of inspiration, in which all the animals from across the forest accompany the dead huntsman's coffin to its grave, including hares, rabbits, cats, toads, cows, stags, deers, foxes, and all manner of four-legged creatures. The illustration is very ironic in that the animals are mourning the death of their greatest threat, a moment that should have caused them to be rejoicing. Just as we are getting swept up in the hypnotic minor round, we then move into the second main musical section, a dance-like tune in which Mahler imitates the sound of a klezmer band, or a kind of Jewish folk band. The melody has all kinds of little chromatic twists and turns, and there's very specific instrumentation that Mahler is using, cymbals, bass drum, oboe, clarinet, and trumpets, that meld together to create a kind of slightly gnarled timbre. Then Mahler gives us this beautiful moment of respite, which we immediately feel as the harp enters. It's like a calming, soothing harmony passes over the whole orchestra, like a light blanket of misty rain, and gone are the harsher tones of the oboe and the trumpet, or the plodding, haunting round tune, and we hear the strings bring in a gentle lyrical melody. Double reeds still make an appearance as both bassoon and oboe play a part in this new musical fabric, as does the clarinet, but everything seems to have softened in this new context, and the brass give the moment a kind of soft, pillowy cushion that everything is resting on. To bring the movement to a close, and before we know it, 
all the musical ideas Mahler has introduced begin to meld together. Here we also are introduced to musical material from the fourth song in the Songs of the Wayfarer cycle, Die Zwei Blauen Augen. Everything comes together in a swelling crescendo before dying back down again, the instruments dropping out one by one until we are back where we started, ending quietly with just a plodding contrabass, timpani, and bass drum. The final movement begins with such a flurry of drama and intensity that is made all the more striking in contrast to that rocking funeral march of the previous movement. In Mahler's original program notes, he said that this movement follows like the suddenly erupting cry of a heart wounded to its depths. This is the largest movement in the symphony, and it traverses a dramatic array of emotions. And similar to Beethoven, Mahler uses the final movement to recall several themes that we've already heard throughout the whole symphony. Again, the connection with his song compositions is made clear as he quotes the second song from his Songs of the Wayfarer cycle in this movement. Here is a moment from the original song context, and then we're going to go from that right into the parallel moment in the symphony so that you can hear the connection between the two.
There are many, many connections between Mahler's song compositions and his symphonic output, and one could probe endlessly at layers of deeper meaning that Mahler may have been trying to express. Even when the songs become wordless melodic quotations in symphonic form, one can still read the original poems, the original song text, and then contemplate the meaning that might be implied in the new symphonic context. Of course, scholars have written pages and pages of eloquent investigations into these thematic connections, and especially the programmatic elements of the symphonies. We have just begun to scratch the surface in our quick survey of these two large works, but I hope I've given you several things to listen for and to think about as you go into live performances of these works or listening to your favorite recordings. We will end by listening to the very end of Symphony Number no. 1. This is the final fanfare, just so you can get a sense of how Mahler brings all of this to a close. That was Guild lecturer Naomi Baratera discussing Gustav Mahler's life and works Des Knaben Wunderhorn, The Youth's Magic Horn, and Symphony No. 1, The Titan. The Metropolitan Opera Orchestra will present this concert at Carnegie Hall on Wednesday, May 31st at 8 p.m. Under the direction of conductor Essa Pekka Salonen and with special guests mezzo-soprano Susan Graham and tenor Matthew Polanzani. More information can be found at carnegiehall.org. I'm Stuart Holt. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.